Welcome to the New York Historical Society's Public Programs Podcast, featuring lectures and conversations presented here at New York Historical's Robert H. Smith Auditorium. The New York Historical Society is a preeminent educational and research institution that is home to both New York City's oldest museum and one of the nation's most distinguished research libraries. This podcast, recorded live on Monday, December 11th, 2017, is a part of the Bernard and Irene Schwartz Distinguished Speaker Series. Legal scholar Randall Kennedy uncovers the origins of federal constitutional rights for students and discusses the First Amendment in a modern context. And now, enjoy the podcast. I I love coming to this auditorium and I love speaking to audiences here um, because I find that the audiences here are usually, in fact, invariably uh, knowledgeable and curious and uh, ask really challenging questions. So I always learn a lot from coming here. Um, My remarks this evening are drawn from the book I'm writing, From Protest to Law. It's a book about um, a a time, sometimes people refer to it as the Civil Rights Revolution. Sometimes people refer to it as the the time of the black liberation movement. Sometimes people refer to it as the Second Reconstruction. When people think about the Second Reconstruction, the Civil Rights Movement, they usually think about changes in the law of race relations. And, of course, there were a number of very important changes wrought by um, the protest protests of that period. Um, the great achievements of the period would include the invalidation of jure segregation. Um, see, for instance, uh, the landmark case Brown versus Board of Education. Another triumph of the period would in, would would involve the um, the attack on so-called private racial discrimination. See, for instance, the Civil Rights Act of 1964, Title II, which prohibited racial discrimination in places of public accommodation, or Title VII, uh, invalidating as a matter of federal law uh, racial discrimination in many parts of uh, the employment market. Um, or... Uh, the Civil Rights Act of 1968 that was passed in the aftermath of Martin Luther King Jr.'s assassination, attacking racial discrimination in many aspects of uh, the housing market. And then the third great triumph would be the attack on racial uh, disfranchisement. And, of course, the, the great monument to that effort would be the Voting Rights Act of 1965. These are the things that people often think about, and rightly so. Um, But there was another aspect of the second uh, reconstruction for that the the protests of that period aimed not only at undoing racial hierarchy, the protests of that period also prompted the growth of expansive constitutional doctrines involving uh, civil liberties. And indeed, it's that aspect that I'm going to focus on tonight. Um, During the Second Reconstruction, there were a number of doctrines that were generated. So, for instance, uh, to protect members of the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People from damaging exposure by segregationists, 
activists were very successful in moving courts to recognize organizational privacy, to shield civil rights attorneys from rules that would have crippled their efforts to uh, further their cause through lawsuits, uh, advocates n- nudged the courts to acknowledge litigation as a form of political expression, warranting protection under the First Amendment, to insulate news organizations from local officials who loathe publicity that put Jim Crow customs in a bad light, lawyers convinced the Supreme Court to transform the law of libel. To protect civil rights protesters against hostile authorities, advocates persuaded courts to craft rules that inhibit the squelching of mass dissent. Now, students played a a big part in all of these efforts, and it was students who contributed mightily to this dual campaign for racial justice and enhanced liberties. Um, A seminal confrontation involving students stemmed from events on February 25th, 1960, when 35 students in Montgomery, Alabama, 35 students who were enrolled at the all-black Alabama State College participated in a sit-in. Their target was a segregated grill in the basement of of the county courthouse in Montgomery, Alabama. Uh, these students were actually, they were, they were continuing a struggle that had been begun on February 1st, 1960. February 1st, 1960, um, the uh, sit-in in Greensboro, North Carolina, the four freshmen who sat in uh, to um, object to racial discrimination in a privately owned place of public accommodation. Well, these students in Alabama were continuing that. And so they go in to this, uh, uh, this, this segregated grill, and they sit down, and the manager says, you know, you know you're not supposed to be here, and we're not going to serve you. So they weren't served, and they just waited. And uh, they were told that uh, they would have to leave or else they would be arrested. And uh, when the police came, the students left. There were no arrests. Uh, There was not any disruption other than the manager just didn't serve people while the students were there. And so they left. And there was a newspaper article about their protests. And the governor of the state, John Patterson, read the newspaper article, was enraged, and John Patterson called up the president of Alabama State College, and he says to the president, uh, President Trenholm, um, he says, you know, I think that you should consider expelling the participants in this demonstration. And um, the president of the college goes to the students and says, listen, I don't want any more demonstrations. Uh, I just got a call from the uh, the governor of the state, and he's very exercised about this. If there are any more demonstrations, you know, there will be consequences. Well, there are more demonstrations, and there are consequences. The president of the university, of the college, sends a letter to nine students informing them that they had been expelled, quote, for, con- for conduct prejudicial 
to the school and for conduct unbecoming a student or future teacher in schools in Alabama for insubordination and insurrection or for inciting other pupils to like conduct. They received this, this, this letter informing them that they were summarily expelled. As of that moment, they were expelled. Well, six of the students who received this letter challenged the legality of their expulsions. And uh, they had very fine attorneys, these six. Uh, Fred Gray was one of their attorneys. Thurgood Marshall, pretty good attorney. Jack Greenberg and Derek Bell, four wonderful attorneys, took up their case and um, argued that their expulsion violated the federal constitution. And the attorneys mainly focused on the absence of any notice or hearing before the imposition of punishment. Well, the case went to a United States district court, and the students were lucky insofar as they received, um, they they obtained uh, a, a very fine judge overseeing their case, Frank Johnson, one of the heroes of the Second Reconstruction, uh, was the judge presiding over their case. Now, Frank Johnson became very well-known. He became renowned for his solicitude on behalf of those who were challenging the Jim Crow system. But to show you the state of the law in 1960 vis-a-vis students, Frank Johnson got this case and very quickly ruled against the students. Uh, Frank Johnson basically, and by the way, Frank Johnson was simply following the settled law of the time. Frank Johnson basically, um, his his theory went like this. Well, um, the right to attend a public college or university is not in and of itself a constitutional right. You know, the state makes this available to you, but you don't have a constitutional right to attend uh, the school. And secondly, uh, the judge posited that uh, to the extent that you are accepted uh, as a student, uh, your acceptance and your presence uh, is conditioned upon an individual student's compliance with the rules and regulations of the institution. Well, in Alabama, the Alabama State Board of Education uh, had a provision that declared as follows. Just as a student may choose to withdraw from a particular college at any time for any personally determined reason, the college may also at any time decline to continue to accept responsibility for the supervision and service to any student with whom the relationship becomes unpleasant and difficult. Judge Johnson saw these terms as having the effect of reserving to the college the right to dismiss students at any time for any reason without divulging its reason other than it being for the general benefit of the institution. Holding in favor of the college. Well, The students' lawyers didn't stop there. The students' lawyers appealed the case to the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals. 
And there the students were lucky again because the students got a panel that consisted of Judge John Minor Wisdom, another hero of the Second Reconstruction. He was probably the most liberal judge on the Fifth Circuit. And the Fifth Circuit was the Court of Appeals that really supervised the federal judiciary in the Deep South during that period. So John Minor Wisdom, staunch liberal, he was joined by another strong liberal, Richard Taylor Reeves, and indeed it was Richard Taylor Reeves who wrote the opinion of the panel. The third judge was a judge by the name of Ben F. Cameron, who was a fervent segregationist. The two liberals won out, and the two liberals reversed Judge Johnson. And with the with the and Judge Reeves, writing for the Fifth Circuit, basically said, listen, yeah, it's true that you don't have a constitutional right to attend a public, uh, public university. But um, any time the government acts, said Judge Reeves, any time the government acts, the government has to work within the constraints of due process. And due process includes, at the basic minimum, notice, and a hearing. And the students were entitled to at least that. Now, there was a dissent. Judge Cameron dissented. He groused that uh, this ruling would undercut school authority and subvert student discipline and make federal functionaries into a gargantuan aggregation of wet nurses or babysitters. But Wisdom and Reeves insisted that under the federal constitution, the student protesters were entitled to due process, and that under the circumstances, due process required notice and some opportunity for a hearing. Now, I would bet that for many people in here, the, the feeling would be, gosh, that's all? I mean, that's, that's Kennedy, that's the big case you're talking about? This case, St. John Dixon versus Alabama State College, was a seminal case. It broke with a deeply ingrained judicial tradition of deference to school authorities. Now, when you read the opinion, Judge Reeves tries to make it seem as though he and Wisdom weren't doing anything revolutionary, that they were not engaged in innovation. But that's just the way judges act. They try to play down innovation. This was a big innovation. To show you how big an innovation it was, let me make reference to another case, actually a New York case. Steyer versus New York State Education Commissioner. It involved, and it was, it was decided just a few months before the events that triggered St. John Dixon, Dixon versus Alabama State College. Steyer involved a student, Arthur Steyer, who wrote letters to the president of Brooklyn College complaining that the school's administration was wrongly dominating student organizations. So all the student did was write a letter to the president 
of Brooklyn College. He was suspended for six months under a rule requiring students to, quote, conform to the requirements of good manners and good morals, end quote. After six months, he was readmitted under the uh, condition that he would agree to have a change in spirit. He comes back and he gives an interview with the student newspaper and talks about his experience. And then the student newspaper publishes an article about this. He is expelled. And he challenges his expulsion. The case goes up to the uh, Second Circuit Court of Appeals. Courts rule against him. Courts rule against him. Uh, one of the judges say, well, yeah, sure. He had a right to speak, but he, do- he had a constitutional right to speak but he doesn't have a constitutional right to say anything he wants and be a student at Brooklyn College. It was, as far as the judges viewed it, in the Steyer case, uh, his being at Brooklyn College was a matter of grace, and he had to conform to the school's rules and regulations. And since he didn't, he could be chucked out of there. Steyer was no outlier. When it was decided, federal case law permitted students to be disciplined, even expelled, on virtually whatever terms school officials determined. It is against that backdrop that the Dixon case is rightly seen as a pioneering ruling. And here I want to stop for a minute because, I mean, you all read the newspapers. Every other day there is some newspaper article about First Amendment issues arising on college campuses, public college campuses, all across the United States. And usually when, there are these, when these uh, articles are written, there's the obligatory reference to the free speech movement at Berkeley, right? And, um, and what happened in Berkeley was wonderful as far as I'm concerned with the students, And it was very important. But the actions that were taken by the black students in the Deep South has really been largely forgotten. And it shouldn't be. The actions they took were deeply influential. And in fact, any student today, any student today at any public institution, when any student today... um, does something that uh, falls within the falls under the umbrella of constitutional protection. Any student today who does anything that falls under the constitutional umbrella of the federal constitution owes a debt of gratitude to those students at Alabama State College. And I want to say a little bit more about the students at uh, Alabama State College because I've been talking thus far about the the, the doctrinal issue, the legal issue. There was also an interesting sociological thing going on in Alabama in 1960. I'm going to go into this a little bit because it adds a bit of poignancy to what those students were up to and what they were struggling against. The students in Dixon were confronting a white power structure. It was the white power structure behind the Jim Crow system. 
But that's not all that they were confronting. They were also confronting a black power structure. They were confronting, among other things, the president of their institution. The president of their institution was a, was a black president. And um, the black president of the Alabama State College um, was in a very tough position himself. He was there under the uh, sufferance of um, an all-white board of trustees. At all of the predominantly black colleges, it wasn't until the mid-1960s that there were any black people who were on boards of trustees at the black public institutions. In the early 1960s, they were all white. It was an all-white board of trustees. Um, The governor of the state, John Patterson, was the ex officio chairman of uh, the board. These black institutions got their operating funds from these legislatures that were fervently segregationists. They were all white legislatures. They were all deeply committed to segregation. And the white power structure typically put into place black educators who would tow the segregationist line and would certainly, certainly suppress rebellion on campus. That was the expectation. And trapped by dependency for financing and other essential resources, these you know, black college presidents did tow the line. They, they were, again, in a very interesting position. On the one hand, they were uh, privileged. They knew very important people. They knew very wealthy people. They knew, uh, sometimes very familiarly, the leading white political figures in their, in their region. Uh, they had a position that few black people had. I mean, after all, the... The, um, the careers of their students, the careers of their faculty members were in their hands. I mean, these, the, the black presidents of these colleges uh, actually had considerable power. But they did not have considerable power vis-a-vis the whites. And so they were in this funny position, and uh, the same was the case of the president of Alabama State College. So, for instance, when the, when the governor of the state called the president of Alabama State College. I mean, the president of Alabama State College, you know, snapped too. One, time, one day, the president of uh, the uh, governor of the state, John Patterson, called up uh, President Trenholm Trent and said, listen, you've got a, a faculty member, Lawrence D. Reddick. He's the head of your history department. This Lawrence D. Reddick is, uh, you know, is an agitator. He's attacking segregation. He must be a communist sympathizer. You need to get rid of him. In fact, I want you to get rid of him before, uh, before the sun goes down. And Trenholm got rid of him. Just like he expelled the student dissidents. Now, again, this is a, many people faulted President Trenholm 
and the position he took vis-a-vis the students. Um, There was one correspondent who wrote the following. It is indeed unfortunate, this is a person writing from Chicago, it is indeed unfortunate that you have become the hatchet man for the governor of Alabama and expelled those kids. Another person wrote him and said, the Uncle Toms are supposed to be dead. Does economic security mean so much? How will you face tomorrow? Another observer wrote, we must not jump every time the white man speaks. And here's one more person. This is a correspondent from Dayton, Ohio, who happened to be President Trenholm's own cousin. And this person wrote, you should have resigned yourself. Interestingly enough, many students had a somewhat more generous view toward their president. Many students recognized his vulnerable vulnerable position and the agonizing compromises that attended it. The same day that President Trenholm warned activists to desist from further protests, one of the dissident students sent him, sent a remarkable petition addressed not to President Trenholm, but to the governor of the state, the figure whom he saw as the real power behind the repression. We know the name of this student. The student was named Bernard Lee. He was expelled. He became a plaintiff in the Dixon case, and he subsequently emerged as a key aide to Martin Luther King Jr. I'm going to read three paragraphs from Bernard Lee's petition to the governor of Alabama. I think it deserves extended quotation. It's one of the things, frankly, that makes me happy to be doing this research because over and over and over again as I do this research I come across things that are just so profoundly inspiring. This is Bernard Lee. To the Honorable Governor John Patterson, we have taken cognizance of your mandate to President Trenholm of Alabama State College to dismiss from the school those students who participated in the sit-down strike at the county courthouse snack bar, Thursday, February 25th, 1960. We, a united group of students of said college, humbly request that you reconsider your order to President Trenholm. This decision is out of tune with the spirit of Americanism. The snack bar at the courthouse is a symbol of injustice to a part of the citizens of Montgomery. It is a flagrant contradiction of the Christian and democratic ideals of our nation. We went to the snack bar not as hoodlums, but in the same manner and spirit in which other college and university students have done in, parts of the, in other parts of the country. Our purpose was to express our resentment of a scheme that fails to recognize its responsibility to decent and orderly persons of all creeds, color, or nationalities. Our cause is just. We are asking that you study it with an open mind and give President Trenholm the authority to settle this issue with us. We are reasonable and considerate. We may be crushed, but we shall not bow to tyranny. 
Lee and the other expelled students ultimately won their lawsuit from the Fifth Circuit. They ultimately won, but they never went back to school. They never went back to school. Eventually, though, their sacrifice did receive a bit of recognition. In 2010, Alabama State College reinstated the nine and conferred upon them honorary degrees. Now, Dixon versus Alabama State College involved college students. What about federal constitutional rights for high school students? The most famous case recognizing a right to freedom of expression for high school students is a case called Tinker versus Des Moines School District. It was decided by the Supreme Court in 1969. In the Tinker case, a principal suspended junior high school students who refused to remove black armbands symbolizing protests against the Vietnam War. Noting the absence of any evidence that the students' symbolic protests caused any disruption or posed a threat of substantially interfering with the work of the school, the Supreme Court ruled that the principal of the school had violated the young dissidents' First Amendment rights by suspending them. Writing for the Supreme Court, Justice Abe Fortas declared that neither students nor teachers shed their constitutional rights to freedom of speech or expression at the schoolhouse gate. As is usual, however, the judgment of the Supreme Court represented a ratification rather than the initiation of a legal proposition. For Fortas acknowledged that courts in the Deep South had previously grappled with the issue of constitutionally protected rights to freedom of expression for secondary school students. In one of these key disputes, a case called Burnside versus Byers, the black principal of the black Booker T. Washington High School in Philadelphia, Mississippi, forbade students from wearing freedom buttons to school. Now, these buttons were little buttons that were emblazoned with the slogan, one man, one vote. And they were also emblazoned with some initials that might resonate with some of you. SNCC, Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. And the students go to school with these buttons, and the principal says, no, Then the next day, nobody comes to school with any of these buttons. But then the next day, droves of students come back with the buttons. And they are suspended. Three challenged the constitutionality of their punishment. They argued that it was wrongfully, that this punishment was wrongfully encroaching upon constitutionally protected freedom of speech. The state contended that the prohibition of the principal should be permitted under the circumstances because it, 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 it assisted in the maintenance of proper discipline. Allowing students to wear political buttons would inevitably result in distraction, thereby undercutting the school's educational mission. The plaintiffs lost the first round when a United States district judge declined to issue a preliminary injunction against the suspension. On appeal, however, 
the plaintiffs prevailed. In the Burnside decision, the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals bestowed upon high school students a right protected by the First Amendment to express themselves unobtrusively, even against the wishes of school authorities. The Fifth Circuit thus anticipated by three years the Supreme Court's Tinker decision. So again, when high school students, day in and day out, in our time, seek the shelter of the First Amendment, they, today, owe a tremendous debt of gratitude for those students in Mississippi in 1964. I'm going to discuss one more case, one more case. It's an important case doctrinally, but actually there's another reason why this case is so close to me, this third case. Um, I'm from Columbia, South Carolina. I was born in the year of Brown versus Board of Education. I was born in 1954. And many of my relatives, for my, my mother, my mother got her education at South Carolina State College. Um, and many of my aunts and many cousins that went to school at South Carolina State College. So I want to tell a story that arises from a dispute at South Carolina State College. This is a dispute that also involves a protracted episode of intra-racial conflict over civil liberties in the Second Reconstruction. It involves another president of a college. This time, the president of the college was a a man by the name of Benner C. Turner. Very interesting character. He was born into an affluent family in Columbus, Georgia. He attended Phillips Academy in Andover, Massachusetts, and then went on to Harvard College and Harvard Law School. He served as the dean of the South Carolina State Law School before being selected in 1950 as the president of South Carolina State College by then-Governor Strom Thurmond. Like other African-American presidents of black segregated public institutions, Turner occupied a precarious position. He served at the pleasure of a political regime committed to the maintenance of white supremacy. Annually, he had to beg an all-white segregationist legislature for funding. He had to wrest support from lawmakers who openly and unapologetically favored white schools over black schools. He had to contend with influential arbiters of white public opinion who maintained that under segregation, race relations were harmonious and that blacks ought to be satisfied with what they had received. The Negro, the Times and Democrat newspaper announced in August 1955, has much for which to thank the white race. He has been given through public monies a splendid educational establishment in this state. So, I mean, that's what the president of South Carolina State College had to contend with. And he tried as best he could. Now, Turner was an interesting guy. In, in certain ways, he was a good college president. 
South Carolina State College grew during his presidency, became accredited. He improved the institution, and this was a very important institution for the black community in South Carolina. And from his point of view, from President Turner's point of view, to protect his institution, he had to be authoritative, he had to be repressive to protect his institution from the greater repression that would have overcome his institution had he not been repressive. That was his theory. And there was something to it. Of course, there was, that, that wasn't the whole story. Uh, he had various motivations, as do we all. President uh, Turner was uh, a, um, actually was a despot. He really didn't like being challenged. And he especially didn't like being challenged by other black people. And so when students in the 1960s started protesting in um, sympathy with their fellow students all around the country who were protesting. He repressed them unstintingly. Um, not only did he repress the students, he repressed faculty members. There was a faculty member who was the uh, head, who was the, the, the leading, she was the, she was the faculty advisor for the newspaper. And the newspaper ran an article about the protests and about racial discrimination. And President Turner saw this article and didn't like it and got mad with her for allowing it to be published. And he fired her, again, summarily. And any students who participated in protests, he would just summarily expel. Well, finally, finally, some students turned to some lawyers and challenged the president. And the case went to court. And because of these earlier cases I've mentioned, the United States District Judge, who presided over the case at trial, ruled against the president and said, listen, you can't, you can't just summarily expel students without a hearing or notice. You can't, you can't lay down a, uh, a, a, um, uh, a rule at a public institution and give yourself the power to um, uh, examine the student newspaper before it's published and just, you know, kick out anybody who writes anything that, you know, you don't like. You just can't do that. You have to work within the federal constitution. One month after that decision came down, uh, President Turner resigned. Now, again, I, 
I say all of this. I think it's important for us to think about these cases, recall these cases, know about these cases, in part because in our own time, it's not as if the issue of the First Amendment on campus is a, you know, an, an issue that doesn't concern us. It does concern us. And one of the things that's happened of late is that champions of racial justice have been or have sometimes thought of themselves as being pitted against champions of civil liberties. And I think that recalling these cases, recalling these cases should suggest to people that that need not be the case. In fact, over the course of American history, over the course of American history, the champions of racial justice and the champions of civil liberties have typically marched arm in arm. There is no reason for them to be at loggerheads. Another reason that I think these stories are important to recall, I've mentioned before, it is all too often the case that the contributions of black Americans to the development of our democracy gets overlooked. And I think a classic case has to do with these students that I've been discussing. And it's for those two reasons in particular that um, I think it's useful for us to remember these cases. I'm going to subside, and I hope I get some good questions. I know that I will. Thank you very much. I knew I wouldn't be disappointed. First question. Shouldn't private universities be subject to the same First Amendment values public universities are mandated to? Actually, there's a big debate going on over this. Um, There are people whom I deeply respect, deeply respect, who think that private universities should be held to the same legal standards as public universities, that private universities and public universities, there should be no difference insofar as the regulation of freedom of expression. A lot of people think that. So, for instance, one per, my home university, my home university is Harvard University. Uh, Derek Bach, wonderful educator. Derek Bach, quarter century ago, um, uh, was very insistent that Harvard University be under the same rules as a public university. I disagreed with him 25 years ago, and I disagree with him today. I don't think that public universities should necessarily be under the same uh, federal constitutional requirements as public universities. Why do I say that? I say that because of my commitment to 
pluralism. The system that we have in the United States, the, you know, we have public institutions, we have private institutions. I think public institutions should definitely be, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm all for a um, uh, thoroughgoing commitment to First Amendment values and want them to be wide open. On the other hand, this is a huge country, 300 million people occupying a huge landmass. People have all sorts of different beliefs. I think that, for instance, let's imagine a small, let's imagine that people want to gather together and have a university that's devoted to, I don't know, communism. We're going to have Lenin University. And at Lenin University, we're going to preach the axioms of communism. And that's all we're going to preach. Well, I'm not going. I'm not going to send my kids there. But on the other hand, if there are people who want that, my attitude is fine. It's a big place. Um... I think it's a mistake to subject all institutions to the same standards. Again, that's a, I think that's a heterodox view in, in my community, but that's, that's, that's the view that I have. Um, let, let me say one more thing about this. It is, if, if a private institution is going to um, take the position that it wants to impose upon its, its community a more restrictive set of standards, I think it should be transparent about that. I don't think a private university should be able to essentially advertise itself in one way and then be a different way. But again, if a private institution wants to uh, impose its private values upon the community that it creates, again, for purposes of pluralism, I think that should be permitted. And therefore, I was against and am against Proposals for federal legislation that would try to put all institutions of higher uh, education under the same standard. Okay. Do you see any parallel between the second reconstruction and the current protests and movement for women's rights against sexual harassment? Sure. I mean, the second reconstruction was part of a ongoing struggle in America for social decency. Throughout American history, there have been such struggles. In the 19th century, the struggle against slavery, feminist struggle in the 19th century, struggle on behalf of working people. 20th century, the same. In our century, the same. Um, and one of the things that we see among these various struggles, they learn from one another. 
They learn from one another. They, They learn from one another in terms of slogans. They learn from one another in terms of uh, imagery. They learn from one another in terms of tactics. They pass the baton. So yes, indeed, I see a parallel. They're all different. One can't, you know, one can't press analogies too much. They're all different. They all arise in different contexts. But are there parallels between them? Sure, there are parallels between them. And uh, we, our minds work through analogy, and of course we analogize between them, and as far as I'm concerned, that's all to the good. Do students have a right to demonstrate in favor of male supremacy? Sure, at a public institution, sure. Do people, Martin Luther King Jr., Martin Luther King Jr., in his first speech as a civil rights leader, his first speech as a civil rights leader was an extemporaneous speech that he gave the day after Rosa Parks was arrested extemporaneous speech, a great speech. And in this speech, he talked about, he said, you know, he said, the great glory of American democracy is the right to protest for right. The night before he was killed, in his last speech as a civil rights leader, he voiced the exact same sentiment in the exact same words. The right to protest the great glory of American democracy is the right to protest for right. Now, I would actually offer one amendment to that. Actually, I said the great right in the United States is the right to protest for wrong. Um, and here again, you know, I, I, I would imagine that there would be people who would disagree with me. But um, again, if one takes a look at the, well, go back to the 19th century. There was a tremendous struggle over civil liberties in the 19th century having to do with the struggle, the fight over slavery. And one of the big differences between the abolitionists and the party for slavery had to do with civil liberties. The party for slavery destroyed civil liberties. So you couldn't go go beneath the Mason-Dixon line and speak in favor of abolition. Could not be done. And in fact, if you sent, you know, if you sent the liberator, if you sent abolitionist literature through the mails, you could be prosecuted, wouldn't allow it. Abolitionists were very different. Abolitionists said, we will allow the proponents of slavery to speak. We will allow that. And they, and they were very proud of the difference that they drew between themselves and their adversaries. 
In the 20th century, if one goes and takes a look at the, you know, what did people say about civil liberties with respect to the activists and the second reconstruction, over and over and over again, champions of racial justice. My former boss, no stronger proponent of civil liberties, including civil liberties of people whom he abhorred than Thurgood Marshall. And on this, as on so many fronts, I would link arms with him. Um, Is there a legally defined threshold threshold that characterizes what counts as protected free speech versus incitement? Um, That's what we have uh, lawyers and courts for. I mean, sometimes, you know, it's, it's a good, it's a wonderful question. And uh, it's not so clear. It's not so clear. I mean, are there, are there limits? Of course there are limits. Um, there are limits to everything, including in the area of freedom of expression. There are always lines to be drawn and um, we have to be attentive to that. Um, I think we do always have to be very, very, very careful. In our world, and indeed in our country, every day, every day, just reading the papers, Every day reading the papers, it seems to me we should become more and more and more attentive to the need to be extremely careful, extremely vigilant, extremely protective of our liberties. There are lots of things that are wrong in the United States of America. Lots of things that are wrong in the United States of America. And we need to be attentive to those things that are wrong. We also need to be very attentive to the aspects of American life that really are beacons to the world. And the protection of freedom of expression, people having the right, and people utilizing the right to express themselves is absolutely precious, and we need to be very attentive to that. And that, too, is a reason why I think it's useful for us to remember those students that I've discussed this evening and discussed with admiration and a real sense of gratitude. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to the New York Historical Society's Public Programs Podcasts. To learn more about current exhibitions and live programming, follow New York Historical Society on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at NYHistory, or visit us at nyhistory.org.